Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast interview episode Alexander's Successors at War, the Perdiccas Years, with Tristan Hughes. Hi there, everyone. Joining us on the show today is Tristan Hughes, a fellow podcaster best known for his work on the Ancients podcast series and History Hit, which covers a wide variety of topics throughout the ancient world. Today he is here to discuss his new book, Alexander's Successors at War, The Perdiccas Years, 323-320 to BC, a volume published by Pen and Sword Books that chronicles the first tumultuous events following the death of Alexander the Great and the sundering of his empire. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to say congratulations on the book and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here, Derek. Now, um, yeah, I'm sure that many of my listeners are probably sort of familiar with your work to some degree or another, but would you care to tell us a bit about yourself? And given that your work spans across the ancient world, why did you choose to write about the early part of the wars of the successors? Well, <laughs> of course, I'm very happy to. Well... The wars of the successors of all parts of ancient history, and it's all so fascinating, but for me, like the, the first ancient history love, the real passion, is always this early Hellenistic period. What happened after Alexander the Great's death? Because it's, in my opinion, it's such a great question, because we sometimes think, we always think the campaigns of Alexander the Great, the man Alexander the Great, I mean, it's an extraordinary, remarkable career of this, this terrible person. Let's, let's be blunt about that. And then you kind of fast forward sometimes to the Punic Wars, the rise of Republican Rome. But really looking at that period in between, you know, what happens after Alexander the Great dies to his empire, one of the largest empires the world had yet seen up to that point, and how it fragmented into these various successor kingdoms that would ultimately come into contact and be, should we say, overthrown, overpowered by Rome just over a century later. So really looking into that was was fascinating and after getting the chance to do a series on the successes for the YouTube channel Kings and Generals several years ago now, but a huge kudos to them for letting me, uh, giving me the opportunity to do that. It was amazing. And really now looking at ancient historians such as Diodorus or Plutarch, looking at the tales of some of these amazing figures from Eumenes to Demetrius, Antigonus and Perdiccas and looking at their stories, just being amazed by the amount of incredible stories within this short time frame that we're told about in extensive detail by the various ancient historians. And it was always a, a passion to want to really do a really detailed narrative of these stories, these amazing stories that erupt after Alexander's death, to really try and tell the story of how this chaos unfolded and to bring to the fore these, these personalities who are larger than life. They really are. I don't think it's any exaggeration. Well, it is slightly an exaggeration, but I can see the point of ancient historians such as Justin when they highlight when Alexander dies. I love this quote. It's, you know, never before had the world seen such an extraordinary amount of renowned, of extremely capable people all in the same place at the same time than at the time that Alexander died. It felt like these weren't just generals. It was, these were princes. I mean, no wonder that so much of the world had fallen to this army because of all these extraordinary figures that were within Alexander's command structure. All of that just wanted to bring that to the fore in this story, to tell the stories of these figures. Um, and yes, you know, what happens from there happens. But it's been a wonderful, difficult two years, but it's so nice to see the end of the tunnel, at least for this book. It is amazing of how many times the narrative either stops right before Alexander or just at Alexander. And then there's this entire swath of chaos 
it's not even just limited to like if you're going say you know people are focused on the mediterranean world it it's spread all over and this is something we'll get into more but I think it's incredible. I, I can sort of sympathize with people where they don't know where to begin and even remotely teaching the subject or even, you know, talking about it because it is such a, an eclectic cast of characters. The scale and scope of these events, uh, they're, you know, it's it's a fitting, you know, Alex, the description of Alexander's funeral games is pretty fitting for a man that was as large as life. It is only as fitting that his the events after his death are equally, if not more so, chaotic and insane as they were as he was alive. Now, you know, not that we're focusing on Alexander here, the title of your book implies that your work is framed around the career of Perdiccas, the man said to have been entrusted by Alexander on his deathbed in 323 to oversee his empire and his yet-to-be-born heir, the future Alexander IV, but they didn't really know that. But after his assassination by his own officers on the banks of the Nile River, roughly three years later, the realm had already succumbed to the first of many civil wars that would follow. Having now written your book, what is your overall assessment of Perdiccas? Was he just too inept for the task given to him, or was it a labor that no man could tackle alone? Was it too much for one person to try to handle and too many forces working against him? Well, it's such a great question. Like, could Perdiccas have succeeded, this figure, as you say, who really comes to the fore after the Alexander the Great's death? It's important to note, first of all, and you did highlight it there, when Alexander dies, according to a couple of our sources, but mainly Quintus Curtius Rufus, they highlight how Alexander supposedly hands to Perdiccas his signet ring before he dies. And what is this meant to represent? Probably not that Alexander wants Perdiccas to be his heir, but that he wants Perdiccas to oversee the eventual succession after Alexander's death. Now, we could go down a whole new rabbit hole here by talking about, was there really a signet ring of Alexander the Great? Is this a later Roman fabrication by Quintus Curtius Rufus, thinking of, let's say, Augustus when he's near death's door in the 20s BC, if I'm not mistaken, and hands his signet ring uh, to one of his subordinates as a potential successor? Whether that's true or not, I think the overarching narrative that Alexander wanted Perdiccas to oversee the succession and have this really prominent role compared to his other generals is very, very large. And it's the, the story that I go along with. Um, because when you look at the context of all that, when Alexander the Great dies, Perdiccas is Alexander's leading adjutant in Babylon. He's Alexander's second in command. And straight away, as you mentioned, he has this degree of authority among his former brothers in arms, his former fellow generals. So that is working for him straight away. In answer to your question of was he inept, I don't think so. He's very much this mini Alexander figure, as were many of the other generals that accompanied Alexander. What do I mean by that? Well, they fought like Alexander, where Alexander was leading at the forefront of his cavalry contingents or with his royal foot guards on pitched battles or assaulting settlements. These adjutants, whether it's Perdiccas and his Lincestian Orestian Phalanx Battalion, or others such as Craterus, Ptolemy later on, Parmenion, Coenus and the like, they're leading their own parts of the line and they are fighting in the front ranks with their men too. So it's that very charismatic style of leadership. So they evoke Alexander's qualities. They just did not have the overarching aura of Alexander when he's alive. And this is important when highlighting the character of Perdiccas, that he was a very, very confident, actually overly confident. He was a very arrogant individual, as were all of these generals, because, you know, they'd gone to the edges of the known world and further. They believed incredibly a lot in their own ability. 
And although they were willing to submit to Alexander's overarching authority, to submit to the authority of one of their fellow generals was not a very um, favourable idea, shall we say. It wasn't a hugely popular idea with certain individuals around Perdiccas at that time, figures we're no doubt going to be talking about more, which are the figures such as Ptolemy and Antigonus. And that kind of brings to your question, could Perdiccas have ever retained this position as this you know, prominent number one over Alexander's empire? Well, first of all, we will never know because he was assassinated, so it's very much speculation and hypothetical. But I think it's important to note that from the offset, even after the immediate chaos in Babylon when Perdiccas is instated as the regent of the new king, which is Alexander the Great's elder, I have to say simple here because we don't know what condition he had, but for some reason he was unable to rule on his own. Perdiccas is named regent, the man really who holds the power, the prostates, for Philip Aridaeus in the wake of Alexander's death and following two to three weeks of turmoil. But from that point onwards, Perdiccas is already at loggerheads with several prominent figures across the empire who aren't willing to really abide by Perdiccas's authority, who want to pursue their own agendas. And most prominent are the figures of Ptolemy, who would become the governor of Egypt, and Antigonus in Phrygia. And Perdiccas, through the three years that he is regent, he is constantly having to avoid pitfalls, avoid these traps sometimes, or, or trying to, to fight back against the own ambitions and the own advancements of figures such as Ptolemy and Antigonus. For instance, Perdiccas is in Babylon, and he wants in 323-322 BC, one of the figures that is an ally of his, Eumenes, who we'll also evidently talk about more as the podcast goes on, to take control of Cappadocia in Asia Minor, Cappadocia region today in uh, eastern Turkey. Now, at the time, Cappadocia was governed, it was ruled not by a Macedonian, it was ruled by an Iranian warlord, really powerful Iranian warlord called Ariarates. He had been ruling Cappadocia for more than a decade, he was a very powerful king. Perdiccas tasks Eumenes and another general, Leonatus, to gather an army and to defeat Ariarates and to take Cappadocia by the spear. And so he asks Antigonus to aid in this venture. Antigonus bluntly refuses to. So straight away there is this desire by some like Antigonus to not abide by Perdiccas's authority. And this continues down to 320 BC, 321 BC, when Ptolemy will ultimately capture the funeral carriage of Alexander the Great from Perdiccas's grasp as it was heading back towards Macedon. Ptolemy brings it to Egypt, thus sparking one of the key sparks of the First War of the Successors, which ultimately culminates in Perdiccas's downfall. The key thing there is that Perdiccas is always flanked from start to finish in these three years by these prominent, powerful figures in Alexander's former empire who are determined not to serve under him. And Perdiccas has to try and remove them by force if he is actually going to be able to continue ruling in this really powerful position. But on the flip side to that, we've talked about individuals who were evidently very hostile to Perdiccas. He had many prominent individuals serving him who were very capable, who were similar to those under Alexander the Great, who perhaps could have helped him maintain control. And these are figures such as Eumenes, the former personal secretary of Alexander the Great, and a very capable administrator. These are also bodyguards such as Python and Aristonus, who had previously served under Alexander the Great. He's also got a potential alliance with the old viceroy in Macedonia, Antipater, who himself envisaged this new triumvirate between himself, Perdiccas, and the other prime figure following Alexander the Great's death, which is Craterus, and the three of them ruling Alexander's empire together. And the reason that doesn't go through are the machinations of Antigonus, 
to tr who tries to sow fear in Antipater's mind that Perdiccas is going to betray him. And actually, Antigonus is right to warn Antipater about this. Perdiccas's own imperial ambitions. Basically, Perdiccas, as he gets more and more powerful over those years, and I'll briefly go over them now, he wins a major battle against Ariorates in 322. It's basically Perdiccas's Galgamela, but we don't know too much about it because it's only restricted to a few lines in our surviving ancient sources. But from what the numbers are said for the size of Ariorates's army and the size of the royal Macedonian army we know that Perdiccas had, I mean, that battle could have been more than 100,000 participants in total with elephants, cavalry, infantrymen, a huge clash which Perdiccas wins. And he then gains more successes in Asia Minor, which makes him more powerful. He then becomes regent of Alexander's infant son, who you mentioned earlier, Alexander IV. So he's regent of two kings now. And with that increased power, with these victories, Perdiccas and his allies start making an attempt for the imperial throne itself, trying to marry into Alexander the Great's family by Perdiccas marrying Alexander the Great's full sister Cleopatra. And through that, Perdiccas is hoping that, you know, he will become Alexander's true successor through the facade of regent and then try and rule the extent of Alexander the Great's empire. Unfortunately, that plan cannot come to fruition because the keystone in that was him taking the body of Alexander the Great back to Macedon. And that is why the body is hijacked by Ptolemy en route to Perdiccas's camp in Turkey in 321. In answer to your question, I've said all that information now. So in regards to Perdiccas... Was it too big a challenge? Well, I think the characters against him made it incredibly difficult for him to have been able to retain that position of power long term. But actually, he had his ambitions, he had his plans, and they could have succeeded if not for these figures trying to hinder it, trying to see about Perdiccas's downfall. And ultimately, it also goes down to Perdiccas's own imperial ambitions, him wanting to break this alliance with Antipater, Antipater ultimately joining the likes of Antigonus and Ptolemy against Perdiccas. And then Perdiccas facing this mass, this huge mass of people united against him by 320 BC in Egypt with Ptolemy, with Antipater and Craterus crossing from Europe to attack in Asia Minor, that ultimately uh, he fails in. Uh, he, As you mentioned, he dies on the banks of the River Nile in mid-320 BC, trying to cross the river to retake the body of Alexander the Great. He's a fascinating figure when you see all of these events. I've just kind of really brushed over them now, and there's obviously much more detail in the book how it all pans out. But I think Perdiccas, he's certainly not inept. He's brutal, he's incredibly confident, he's arrogant, but he can be very generous to his subordinates as well. He's learnt from Alexander. But the troubles that he has is his own imperial ambitions combined with the amount of figures in the empire who want to see him doomed and the amount of figures in really powerful positions. And as you're elaborating on this, this constant struggle to rein in these characters, and we're going to get more into that in a second here, it's, it's incredible how it took a force like Alexander to control men like Ptolemy, like Antigonus, Seleucus. These are figures that they dominate, they're larger than life, as if Alexander's their predecessor or their, uh, their prototype model that they all strove to be like. And Perdiccas sort of inherited this huge tangled ball of yarn, its own Gordian knot trying to deal with. And you can't help but feel sympathetic to some degree of what he was trying to tackle with, whether he did already intending to betray Alexander's children, as half-brother, before the body was cold. I think with Perdiccas himself, it, it's hard to say how much can we take him as his betrayal is so, not necessarily bipolar, but certainly polarizing, 
who survived to write the tales of the events after Alexander. Ptolemy, his famous biography on Alexander, he died peacefully in bed as master of Egypt. The journals of Hieronymus of Cardia, who was who did serve under Eumenes for quite a while, but eventually was with Antigonus, who was against Perdiccas. And was there, do you, did you sense a sort of hostility in those sources regarding Perdiccas, or the events that transpired did not allow him to express his more, not necessarily benign qualities, but his skill in administrating and generalship? You mentioned the, the very scant reference to his battle with Cappadocia, but uh, was there any sort of indication you could tell that there was maybe more to this figure than we otherwise could have had? I think absolutely. Um, well, what I'll say is absolutely, you can see the hostility in certain sources for certain events. But at the same time, I'm not going to portray Perdiccas as, you know, this this angel of a figure. He said he's a horrific figure. They're all horrific figures. They're incredibly brutal when they can be, and I can elaborate into that in a bit. But in regards to the hostility of Perdiccas in certain sources, yes, you can see it. You mentioned Ptolemy in his own writings. Absolutely, that is a key uh, example of this. It stems back really into the writings during Alexander the Great's reign itself, where you see in Arian most particularly, there are some cases where Perdiccas's portrayal is, is very bad, it's very negative, and particularly the men under Perdiccas are seen as rash, irrational, they start assaults on sieges without Alexander's orders because they want to glory, and so on. I think you get examples at the Siege of Thebes and perhaps also the Siege of Halicarnassus. You also get times, and this is my pet hate with Ptolemy, he's a fascinating figure, but Ptolemy tries to place himself at events and to say, you know, I was really important at this particular event, especially during Alexander's reign, when almost certainly he wasn't. And a good example, I've just done a podcast about the Battle of the Persian Gate, and Ptolemy tries to steal some of the credit there by saying he was leading one of the battalions, like in one of the attacks, but it's not mentioned in any of the other sources, and Ptolemy really doesn't become that prominent, at least in my opinion, until the 320s BC. But in regards to after Alexander's death, I think you see this first of all, right at the, in the Babylon crisis that erupts when Alexander dies. We have these factions emerging, deciding what's going to happen to Alexander's empire, and ultimately the soldiers, the infantry, decide to not adhere to the suggestions of particular generals such as Perdiccas or his allies such as Aristonus or even Ptolemy and to put forwards the kingship of Aridaeus, Philip Aridaeus III. But ultimately there is a reconciliation between the two sides and this is where the two sources for this event differ. Our two sources, the main one and our most reliable for most of it, is Quintus Curtius Rufus, the Roman historian writing the first century, but we also have a bit more confusing accounts from Justin. Surprise, surprise, it's Justin again, this man who always seems to have these weird little insertions and just things where anyone sane looking at his history is just like, that makes no sense. But here it's quite interesting because near the end of the crisis, when there's a threat of civil war, when the generals are outside the walls of Babylon with an army and are basically laying siege to it, and the infantry, the veteran infantry are inside, and Meliega, their leader, is really pondering, he's struggling, he doesn't know what to do. But what is said, according to Curtius, Quintus Curtius Rufus, it's Philip Aridaeus III who basically stands up and makes the generals and the infantry uh, reconcile. You know, what are you doing? This is Macedonians fighting Macedonians. We shouldn't be doing this. We should be united following Alexander's death, and in the process, really alleviating the tension that was potentially there. But Curtius, he assigns this to Philip Aridaeus III, which doesn't seem very likely. And Justin says it was Perdiccas who did this, which makes so much more sense. Perdiccas going in and, and, and calming the situation as the most prominent figure of the time. And I think this is just an example where we have straight after Alexander's death, Curtius 
perhaps using the writings of, of Ptolemy or whatever, a source hostile to Perdiccas, where Perdiccas's role in the alleviating of this crisis is reduced. But actually, it was most likely it was Perdiccas who did this action. In regards to going on from that, though, I think Perdiccas is interesting because, as you mentioned, we do get scant references of his clashes in Cappadocia, but they're not really mentioned in detail. How I would love it if had survived Arian's events after Alexander, which we only have an epitome of from the much later historian Photius. But Arian, most famous for writing the Anabasis of Alexander, the campaigns of Alexander, he also wrote another book about this period between 323 and 319 BC, about and explaining in detail what happened following Alexander the Great's death. Um, boy, how much I'd love to have, have seen that. But yes, Perdiccas, he doesn't get a great portrayal in the sources, but he's very infamous at times, and it's that it culminates in Egypt when he loses the complete respect of his men and it goes sometimes you get really this coming to the fore this portrayal of Perdiccas as this arrogant figure who really I mean perhaps with good reason he was probably considered himself at that time you know the, the man who was closest to Alexander the Great when he died perhaps apart from Craterus but he was Alexander's second in command but that obviously wasn't very popular with those serving under him let's not flower coat this and say that Perlicus, you know he's just been given a really bad rep he has but we can't also deny his brutality his uh, imperial ambitions his desires to go f to go and pursue these imperial ambitions no matter the mortality cost the mortality rate shall we say of his enemies of people who were potentially in his way for instance with the Bactrian revolt in Afghanistan in ancient Afghanistan when that erupts uh, and it's put down by one of Ale uh, one of Perdiccas's adjutants Python Perdiccas gives express orders to the Macedonian veterans before they leave to go east to kill everyone who surrenders, to let none of them survive, perhaps because he didn't want the soldiers to serve in a potential threat army. And like, but that's a, such an extreme reaction to order all of these soldiers, which probably could have done so much good if they'd just been left on the frontiers to try and help man those frontiers in that far corner of the empire. Perdiccas orders there to be killed and for the Macedonians to take control of all of their baggage. Years later, or a year later, with Ariorates, that battle we talked about, he has Ariorates and his whole family crucified, or hung, or impaled. One of the three, we're given three different accounts. This old man, he's 82 years old, and he's mercilessly killed, along with all of his family, by Perdiccas. He then goes on and he raises to the ground the stronghold of some of the most feared bandits in Asia Minor, in Anatolia, the Asauri. And uh, from then on, he's, he's, uh, you see these planned betrayals. As mentioned, he was planning to marry Alexander the Great's sister Cleopatra in 321 BC, but he'd already married, he'd already agreed to marry Antipater's daughter Nicaea and already married her. And Antipater thought he'd created this alliance with Perdiccas through that, but actually he intended just to kind of placate Antipater for long enough for him to be more powerful and then shun Nicaea and marry Cleopatra. And that's where we go back to Antigonus. Antigonus going to Antipater and saying, hey, you better watch out because I've heard rumours that Perdiccas is going to shun your daughter and humiliate you. Perdiccas, ruthless, brutal. Yes, he's, there's a hatchet job done on him in the sources, particularly for his role during Alexander the Great's campaigns proper and in the immediate aftermath of Alexander the Great's campaigns. But at the same time, those sources that we have, they more go to promote Ptolemy rather than really deride Perdiccas in the accounts, I'm just thinking really of the accounts of Perdiccas's invasion of Egypt. We have stories about how Perdiccas was unable to win a rhetorical argument against Ptolemy at the start of it. 
We then hear how Perdiccas suffers many defections to Ptolemy, which is very, very plausible. But then it really hammers home on Ptolemy's genius, you know, and his role in helping defend the camel fort and preventing Perdiccas from crossing the river, Ptolemy promoting himself, but by doing so, showing how much greater he was than Perdiccas. And ultimately, he also does that when Perdiccas fails to cross the Nile near Memphis. I think one of the greatest examples is where there's a story that Ptolemy is among the defenders at the camel fort and the walls are being battered down and Perdiccas's veterans are climbing the walls. He's got these elephants outside. They're trying to bash down the palisade. Ptolemy's soldiers, his mercenaries and his, his philoi, his friends, they're terrified. They're worried. And then apparently Ptolemy stands up like this action figure. He grasps this long spear. He goes on top of the parapet. He's right on top of Perdiccas's lead elephant who is smashing down the palisade and he manages somehow to stab the elephant in both eyes and by that it's like a rallying call and the Ptolemy's forces, you know, with renewed vigour they start attacking Perdiccas and his soldiers again and they ultimately win the day and sorry Perdiccas but you failed. But as I said, the sources aren't very kind to Perdiccas but at the same time... When we go later between 322, 321, 320, I don't think there's an active hatred of him. It's more to big up his rivals. It's more just to focus on his rivals. The real kind of hatchet job of Perdiccas is done during the years of Alexander's campaigns themselves and in the immediate aftermath. Now, we keep dancing around and bringing up these names, Ptolemy and Eumenes of Cardi, Antigonus. Though Perdiccas is the protagonist, quote-unquote, for lack of a better word, of your story, there is quite a cast of memorable characters throughout the successor period. For as we mentioned previously, the crafty Ptolemy, the underdog Eumenes of Cardia, and even powerful queens like Olympias of Epirus and Eurydice II. Were there any figures that you found particularly perplexing, fascinating, or both in your studies? I think all three. All three of those, Derek, my friend. They're like they're one of the great things about this period is that we've mentioned all these names and the, the amount of different names can put people off sometimes with this period because there's so many and I think it's one of the great things of having like a who's who section in the book for this period so you can figure out who is who literally as it says on the tin but once you get through that it's just so fascinating some of these figures their rises and their falls in such small periods of time. I mean, I'll highlight a few now I thought were really interesting, uh, as you've asked. Fascinating, first of all. He's not a Macedonian at all. He's not a Persian. He's a Spartan. He's the only real Spartan that we hear of in this period, and you might know who I'm going to talk about, but he's this mercenary captain called Thibrone. And he is absolutely amazing. Thibrone, a bit of backstory to this, he comes onto the scene, we hear, as he's serving as the mercenary captain of a man who at that time was the most wanted man in the Mediterranean, the most wanted man in the Macedonian Empire, which was Alexander the Great's former corrupt treasurer, Harpless. Harpless had escaped Alexander's grasp when Alexander had returned from campaigning in India. He saw the writing on the wall. He knew he'd probably be executed like his former friends in arms, well, former friends who were similarly corrupt, and he'd escaped to Greece, to the central Aegean, to the Mediterranean, with a large fortune and a large mercenary army, one of the commanders of which was Thibron. But Thibron, once Harpless and this band of 6,000, 7,000 mercenaries have made their way to Crete after going to Greece and uh, the bottom of the Peloponnese and all of that, uh, Thibron decides to take matters into his own hands. He decides to assassinate Harpless in cold blood and to take command of the mercenary army, six, 7,000 men strong. And from there, he's invited over to North Africa, to Cyrenaica, to these wealthy, prominent, Hellenic, Greco-Libyan city-states that have been there since the end of the 7th and the early 6th centuries BC, the most prominent of which was Cyrene. And he's invited over there by exiles to take 
control of the city to to put the exiles back in charge. And what follows is this incredible topsy-turvy, one time he's winning, next time he's losing, next time he's winning again, then he's losing again, then he's calling reinforcements and it looks like it's all over, then he's back in Cyrenaica and he's fighting another huge titanic clash against the Cyrenaeans. This back and forth campaign between Thibron and the Cyrenaeans and the other city-states and the Libyans in that area, which continues for one, two years max, and ultimately finishes with the Macedonian governor in Egypt, Ptolemy, who's recently arrived in Egypt, sending a detachment west to Cyrenaica, to Libya, modern Cyrenaica today. Think around the area of, uh, I think it's Tobruk and Benghazi kind of area. And ultimately there's this final clash between Thibron and this Macedonian expeditionary force commanded by Ptolemy's adjutant called Ophelas. But his story is just so fascinating because it's ups and downs all the time. As mentioned, he has a victory first of all. He takes command of Cyrene for a bit. He even starts making his own coins in his own image with his own name at Cyrene. But then he's betrayed by one of his most prominent adjutants because this adjutant was annoyed that he didn't get as many spoils as he expected. And then, like you know, he suffers more setbacks. He loses his fleet then he gets reinforcements and he comes back again, it's resurgence. And ultimately, it results in this big climactic clash against Ptolemy's followers for who is going to get control of Cyrenaica, which I don't really want to spoil the outcome of um, just yet, because it is, it is such a fascinating story. So Thibron was definitely a figure I'd like to, to highlight. In regards to other non-Macedonian figures, and actually let's say anti-Macedonian figures at the time, you've got to think of figures where you can see the archaeology trying to align it with the scant source material that we have. And these include figures like the, the, the Idrisian king, the Thracian dynast Suthes III, who we only have a small bit of in the surviving literature for what happens in 323-322. But according to that, he fights a big battle against the new Macedonian commander of Thrace, Lysimachus, a battle in which Lysimachus is supposedly outnumbered five to one. And yet, it's a bit debated, it seems like after either one or two battles, Lysimachus and Suthes, they call it a draw, they call it quits, and they agree to coexist for the next 10 years, ruling Thrace. But what's so interesting about that story is, although we don't have much literature, we do have archaeology surviving of Suthes III, of his reign, and at this time, his construction of his great, grandiose new capital on the Tonsus River, Suthopolis which is today underneath water. But they did a great excavation there and the excavation has revealed some Hellenistic elements to it. Of course, it's called Suthopolis. It's like the Idrisian Alexandria, like Alexander called all these cities after himself. Suthes is naming his new capital after himself. But there are also these clear hallmarks of Idrisian culture too. That was one really interesting example where you have this figure that we don't know too much about from the literature for this period, but we do have this archaeological footprint remaining of him and his works in this interior of Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria area. Perplexing is especially true of some figures. There are some figures where you just, you just really don't understand what was going through their minds. They are completely irrational at times. I mean, one figure I think of immediately is Alcatas, who is the brother of Perdiccas, the younger brother of Perdiccas, and a staunch ally of Perdiccas. But Alcatas does this infamous act in 321 BC when Perdiccas is really, really powerful and it's going really, really well for him. Alexander the Great's eldest half-sister is a warrior princess called Kanane. And at that time, she travels to Asia Minor from Macedonia with her daughter, wanting to make her daughter the wife of Philip Aridaeus III, King Philip Aridaeus III. This is mainly for the survival of Kanane 
and her young daughter to ensure that they made their move before they were used as pawns by someone else in this Macedonian Game of Thrones. But of course, the thinking behind that alongside survival was that by Kunane's daughter becoming the wife of Philip Aradeus III, they would have incredible influence over the king, and this would diminish, reduce the influence Perdiccas had as regent over this king. So this is something that Perdiccas and Alcatas and the like, they don't want this to happen. They don't want Kanane to get to the royal camp and to then make her daughter, with the support, the almost guaranteed support of the soldiers, to instate her daughter as the wife of Philip Aradeus III. But Alcatas goes to an extreme measure to ensure that it doesn't come to fruition because he murders Kanane, this elder half-sister of Alexander the Great, in front of the Macedonian soldiery. He kills a member of the Macedonian royal family in front of an audience of soldiers who are sworn to protect it, who love the Macedonian royal family, who are incredibly outraged by this action, by Alcatas. It's one of the most stupid actions in the court of Perdiccas, in the faction of Perdiccas, if they were wanting to seize control, because it really sets alarm bells ringing, not just with the soldiers, but with those other prominent players like Antigonus and Ptolemy, that yes, Perdiccas, he really does have these imperial plans and we need to stop him. It, it ups the ante of those figures at the same time. So there are figures like, like Alcatas who are really perplexing in, in, in the decisions that they make in the heat of the moment, which ultimately helps culminate in the downfall of Perdiccas and his regime. But, the, you know, there are so many figures and I could go on and on and on. And actually, throwing this over to you, Derek, in a second, if there are any figures that you'd love to talk about or you'd love us to discuss in detail, I'm all ears and I'm happy to like have a great chat about that because there are so many. Look at Demosthenes or Hyperiades, these prominent anti-Macedonian Athenian statesmen who try to, well, who lead the revolt against the Macedonians, this coalition against the Macedonians following Alexander the Great's death. Or you could go to the likes of Archon, the governor of Babylonia, who no one really knows but was vital in the whole heist of Alexander the Great's body by Ptolemy. Or you could talk about Ariorates, of Leonatus, of, like, there's, there's so many. Just get the book. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's some advertising for you folks. Uh, but I would say that for me, I'm very much a Seleucid fan, and Seleucus himself is so interesting precisely because we just don't know what he was doing, really. We know that he was in the talks regarding Alexander's death, uh, or immediately after, rather, in part of the discussions about what to do with the empire. We know he was in the camp of Perdiccas and was probably the one to assassinate him. But then he kind of is this weird background secondary character that is not built on, and suddenly he becomes small character in Perdiccas's camp, then minor governor of Babylonia, and then suddenly controlling three-quarters of the empire. I think that that story is so fascinating precisely because we don't know what happened. Why did he become as powerful? Why was he reached to by Ptolemy? We don't know. And just his more of, more of what I find particularly interesting about him was later after these events. But it's certainly with a lot of these times, it's there are such an, uh, an, an insane amount of characters to like I, Harpalus is another favorite of mine, that lovable rogue where he siphons thousands and thousands of silver talents just to waste on nothing. And he was given a pass by Alexander. Imagine wasting hundreds of millions of dollars as a governor and then, you know, oh, I'll give you a free pass. Then he does it right again. So, so 
the, those figures alone, and you know, I can bring up several others like Amostris, the uh, surviving princess of the uh, Achaemenid royal family, originally married to Craterus before being, you know, imparting on amicable terms, established herself as queen in northern in the Pontic region of the Black Sea. Yes, that is fascinating in itself because actually, um, um, I think that that alliance, that marriage to that figure, he's mentioned on the Black Sea, is the tyrant of Heraclea Pontica, Dionysius, who's a fascinating figure in his own right. Um, but I think that alliance, that marriage to Dionysius, cements an alliance between the faction of Craterus and Antipater with Dionysius when they invade Asia Minor at the start of the first successor war, because we do know that Dionysius provides ships. Most likely during that campaign, I, I think I followed Billows on this, um, Richard Billows on this, and we do know that there are ships of Dionysius's in Cyprus later on for a campaign there, which is most likely the one where Antigonus goes during the First World Successors, probably with some Athenian ships and with Dionysius. So that Amastris is fascinating, as you say, because I think Craterus has now married Phyla, the eldest daughter of Antipater. And in the process of that, Amastris, it's, it's, it's a horrible fact, but it's one that you need to understand for the time, is that daughters... And these women just sold off sometimes to become diplomatic pawns, to be married, you know, marriage alliances with particular figures. And it, this is one other example of it where it looks like Amastris's marriage to Dionysius at that time helped Antipater and Craterus gain a good, powerful ally in Asia Minor right at the onset of the first successive war. But yeah, I, I wanted to interlude there just because of that, because you mentioned Amastris and I'm just like, yes, you're right. She's a fascinating one. And it's precisely interesting just how even even though this is Macedonian dominated the whole narrative the the players in it you do have these glimpses where they are relying on the previous power structures of the former Persian Empire which had only just collapsed so many of the people that were involved to some extent be they Ariarathes who was probably a semi-autonomous satrap of Darius III uh, he's still running around uh, then you have uh, oh I I for, can't I can't place his name it was the he was friends with Demetrius Polyar Archides and Demetrius had to write in the sand for him to run because Antigonus was going to murder him. Uh, I can't remember if that was uh, Mithridates the first. Oh my God, there's so many, <laughs> so many figures. <laughs> there's so many. Like it's, it's the names thing again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, exactly. Please, you know, if if it's not Wald Valdemar Heckel's book, Who's Who in the Age of Alexander the Great, it's definitely uh, your book providing a a helpful glossary of names is a huge boon for anybody looking to start with a period. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned Voldemort Heckel's book because that is actually one of my favourite books from the period because it is so helpful to distinguish, you know, you know well, as the, as it says on the tin, who is who. And it's it's a, I've tried to create this as a popular history book, but I must, you know, I've always got to highlight the, the historians and I always highlight them in the end notes, you know, the various arguments because polarised arguments exist on almost everything in this period, including the dates. And there's some things which we just really don't know. And it's like we have to put forward what, we, what you think is most likely. And there'll be alternative arguments put forward by other historians and we're just like basically lots of their footnotes galore if you agree with if you want to have a look at the other arguments by you know whether it's edward anson Liz, elizabeth carney joseph royceman voldemort heckle as you mentioned earlier uh, richard Eriton, all of that lot it's all that and as you say it there's so many of these fascinating figures aren't there and you know don't get me started about high versus low chronology with this period that's a whole nother ball of wax i don't want to be dealing with again anytime soon uh, you know speaking of like trying to combine and analyze these arguments, most accounts from at least the ancient world tend to focus on the events transpiring in Babylon in June of 323 and the immediate actions of the successors. But Alexander's empire was vast. His death caused shockwaves throughout Europe and Asia. 
There were wayward mercenaries in Bactria, as you mentioned, uh, assassinations of Macedonian and Indian officials in India, anti-Macedonian revolts in Greece, and oppressive governors in Egypt. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced when trying to weave together this story of such geographic and gargantuan proportions with relatively limited sources that often contradict one another? It's a great question, and I, and 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 yeah, it was it, it was it was difficult, especially as I wanted the whole structure of the book to basically just be a a, a narrative story to try, to try and tell the story all of these stories uh, and and then try and you know kind of link them all together because it ultimately does mean that you have to highlight the background of certain places such as the background of the Adrisian kingdom so you can understand how why Suthes was so intent on revolting against the Macedonians when he did or the background of Cyrene why it was such a prominent city-state and so highly sought after or looking at stuff such as yes you know the background of Ariarathes in Cappadocia and how he'd managed to gain so much power in the years before Alexander the Great's death so that there has to be that almost going back in history to tell those stories and to get that background there before you can actually then tell the narrative and keep it going I think it's it's definitely it was such an interesting challenge and you uh, you mentioned that because of course our sources only highlight certain events there are probably many other events that we don't know which occurred at the time you mentioned in the east of the empire where we hear of that Bactrian revolt in the northeast but we have no idea what's going on with figures such as Taxiles or, or Porus in India or Sibertius in uh, Arachosia, Telepolemus and, and, and that lot in Carmania so based east of the Zagros mountains basically until they appear a bit later when those main protagonists that we're talking about and we've been talking about end up in that area of of the world it's very much focused on the the near east and the eastern mediterranean what was good though was to actually look at these various stories in a lot of detail to try and make sense of you mentioned the high chronology and the low chronology to try and make sense of the dating with all of it it's almost like a detective story in some sorts of, of, of ways because there are certain figures you hear of at certain points and you know that they're at certain places at certain points and you can kind of estimate the dating time when they were there and then they spring up two or three years later somewhere else and you have to kind of piece it together how they get there and then how they get somewhere else after that. I think a good example here would be Python. We know that Python is one of Alexander the Great's adjutants, senior adjutants. He's one of his seven Somatophilakes, one of his seven bodyguards when Alexander dies. So we know he's in Babylon in June 323 BC. We then know that he's sent east to crush the Bactrian revolt, which must have occurred in early 322 BC around that time. So we know that at that time he's in Afghanistan. He's in, he's in that area east of the Zagros Mountains. And then we next hear of him alongside Seleucus and the likes with Perdiccas serving under Perdiccas in Egypt. And he, like Seleucus, is one of the ringleaders who assassinates Perdiccas. So then you have to piece together, okay, so when does Python reunite with Perdiccas and, and how does it follow from there? And I'm very much of the opinion that he probably reunites with Perdiccas when Perdiccas is campaigning in Asia Minor in 322-321. And when you kind of piece that all together and then you see then Python is going to be with Perdiccas until Egypt, with the movements of other figures that we know about, that we hear from the various sources such as Antipater, you can then start piecing together the most likely dating chronology for these three years. And it's ultimately led me to, I, I believe, with quite a lot of, I'm happy to stick my neck out here, but the amount of actions and where we know people were between 323 and 320 and the amount of movement makes me think there's just not enough time 
for Perdiccas to have died in 321 and that whole event to have occurred in 321, it had to have had occurred in 320. And I think the dating of the sources actually, the timestamps that some sources say from Babylonian astronomical records, etc., and the Parian marble back that, these, these calendars. But you use what you have and then you use what historians have theorized since then you look at their arguments and you put forwards the argument which you think is most likely and then you put he said you put the links to the historians in question and the alternative arguments uh, at the back in the in the footnotes but it's it, it was incredibly challenging to then try and as you said form a narrative of it but i think the stories are there and they do interlink so much so that you can you could make it but it just took a lot of time now for me i've the, the, the wars of successors and Alexander's period, I could keep talking about that all day. However, I feel that this is an excellent place to stop. And once again, I just would like to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk about your book. I'm very excited to take a look at it when it comes out, uh, which is, I guess, only a week away now at the time of recording. But if listeners were interested in picking up a copy of your book or finding out more about your past work, where should they head on over to? Well, oh, if you want to pick up a copy of the book, uh, you can just search Alexander's Successes at War, The Perdicus Years. I'm sure there'll be a link in the description, won't there? Or, or the name of it will be in the description. And that book should should come up. It's published by Pen and Sword. I don't think there are any other books of that name, so you'll probably be able to find it without too much of searching. Um, if you want to find out more about myself or my work, well, The Ancients Podcast is the main ancient history feed that I am involved in as the host. If you look for The Ancients, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Ancients Tristan or Ancients Tristan on Twitter. Um, but those are the main places that you can find me. And thank you for listening. Then, in the meanwhile, I'll make sure to include all of these links to Tristan's books and podcasts in the podcast description on my show notes on my website. But for the rest of you, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>